will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1? We're going to be reading from verse 26 to 29. If you have a smart device and you can use the version app, we encourage you to use the version app or to download it. It's an actual, actually a great application developed by a church. And we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 29. For those new to, new to the gospel, new to Bible, it's in the second part of the Bible. After the Gospels, after Romans, you'll find 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of the Lord. Amen. You can all have your seats. So um, a couple of months ago, my husband and I had the very unexpected pleasure of taking in a documentary on Netflix, um, and it's called The Black Godfather. Has anybody heard? Anybody? I see a couple of head nods. The Black Godfather. So what that's about, it actually tells the story of a very little known giant in Hollywood by the name of Clarence Alexander Avant. And at 85 years of young age, this man decided that he would finally allow his story to be told after years of avoiding interviews and avoiding having biographies written of him. He finally decided he was good with allowing his story to be told. And the story is that this man was born in North Carolina and was the eldest of eight children. And when he had a failed attempt at taking the life of his abusive stepfather, um, he actually got chased out of his home by his, by his family, he had to leave. So his, his family packed him up and they sent him to New Jersey to go and live with other family members at the age of 15. So at the age of 15, with a ninth grade education, Mr. Avant started a very humble work ethic. He started working as a stock clerk for Macy's and he soon moved on to working in a law, di a law directory. And it became er very evident early in his life that he was not you know, the ordinary young man. As a matter of fact, a man by the name of Joe Glaser in his, in, well, when Mr. Avant was in his early 20s, noticed him and noticed that he had a knack and a talent for choosing really good talent where music was concerned. And so he made him an agent, um, a music agent, and he started to manage other other musical talent and as the rest as they say is history and so over the next couple of decades Mr. Avant would go on to not only manage other music um, and record labels but he created two of his own he founded a broadcasting system called avant-garde broadcasting and he had uh, many more lucrative achievements but his greatest success was not in the things that were actually making him money this man's greatest success came from the fact that he was able to identify the qualities and potentials in others and invest of his own time and his own resources in order to connect them and turn their potentiality into greatness. 
He's so well connected in Hollywood that he's considered a kingmaker. So a kingmaker is somebody who uses their political influence or other influence to invest in others, to also bring them to a place of establishment and a place of power. This is the kind of man that he is. And just so I can give you an idea of the level of connectivity and the breadth and of areas that he touches and the type of people that he has helped along the way, I want you to listen to some of these names and see if you recognize some of them. Quincy Jones. Sarah Vaughn, Bill Withers, Snoop Dogg, P. Diddy, Louis Armstrong, Susan DePass, President Bill Clinton, Senator Kamala Harris, uh, President Barack Obama, Jamie Foxx. These are just some of the names of the people whose lives this man invested in and made a difference in. And for those of you who are sports enthusiasts, maybe you remember a certain person by the name of Hank Aaron, or maybe Muhammad Ali. Maybe you remember Jim Brown of the Cleveland Bears. Anybody remember? These are the types of people that his, he has invested in their lives. And what really blew my husband and I away was not just the number of people that he touched, but it was the why, the W-H-Y behind why he was doing what he was doing. It was never for personal monetary gain. He was essentially identifying greatness in others before they were exposed to the masses so that he could help to draw out the treasure that was in them and bring that to light. This is what Jamie Foxx has to say about Clarence. When asked about Clarence Avant's impact on his life, Jamie Foxx says he just makes everything happen and for the best. You seldom see people in today's world who look for the best in people. That, st that statement alone had such gravity with me. Mr. Avant is really a living and breathing example of what it means to be a gold digger in the good sense, in the positive sense of the term, in that he seeks to bring out the best in and for others. And so last week, Pastor kicked off our gold digger series as you can see, he kicked off our Gold Digger series and he invited us to start digging deeper in our relationship with God. He wanted us to go after God and to seek out God with everything that was within us so that we could uncover and, uh, and look at the treasures that laid beneath the surface of our relationship with God. We were challenged to seek more out of our relationship with him and to pursue him in such a way that we became gold diggers so that we could access everything that he has to offer. This week, I want to challenge you to be gold diggers when it comes to our relationships and our interactions with others. Because it's all good for us to talk about going after God with everything and establishing a great vertical relationship with the Lord. But what about our horizontal relationships? What about the people that we deal with every day in our homes, in our businesses, on our jobs? It's important for us to make sure that we are pursuing the best in others and learning how to bring out the best in others as we engage in our relationships. And it's easy for us to, when we're looking with natural eyes, uh, for everything to seem superficial and for us to think that there's very little to others. But I'm praying that after observing today's study, we will leave here with a new appreciation for and a determination to be gold diggers in our everyday encounters. So the text that we read earlier is actually a part of a much greater work called an epistle. An epistle is a letter that was written um, in the Bible. It's a letter written from apostles to established churches and church plants that they have. And in this case, 1 Corinthians is the first epistle that's been recovered historically that was written by the apostle Paul to Corinth um, between the years of 53 to 55 AD. Now I want you to track with me just for a second. We're going to do a little history lesson. So I 
want you to have a background on what the city of Corinth was. It was a city that was located in Greece and like many Grecian cities at the time, it was steeped in idol worship. So they worshiped the goddess Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Some of you might, might have heard of Aphrodite or remember it from school studies or even sometimes TV shows. And they were known for devout practice of temple prostitution. It's told that even there were upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes at any given time during the, within the city of Corinth. And when the city was invaded and torched in 146 BC, it was laid bare and many of its inhabitants were killed. The rest were sold off into slavery. And at that time, the idolatry of, of Aphrodite ceased, um, but once the Romans came in and they began to colonize, they reintroduced their very own version of idol worship. Stay with me. There's a reason for this history. So as part of the Romanization process, they started to change the way that the towns looked. So they took it out of these small town and they started to organize their towns the way that it did look in Roman cities. So they began to set up very established centers and, and cities within the city of Corinth um, for the purposes of drawing larger populations. And this, this city began to draw different types of people, Greco-Romans and Jews, traders, sailors from the East and the West, prostitutes, all types of different religious frauds of every stripe. They were coming in to the city and they were drawn to the city because of the booming wealth that the city was now representing. And they reintroduced Aphrodite worship, but not as much as it was before. So the reason that I'm telling you all of this is because I want you to have an idea of what it is that Paul is going to be confronting when he actually gets to Corinth. He's not coming to a Christian city that he's just gonna join in and help to continue to build. He's essentially stepping into a melee of all different types of thought, all different types of culture, all different types of practices, most of which are completely contrary to what it is that he is bringing into the picture. Are you still with me? Okay, okay, so by the time he arrives in 4950, 4950 AD, Corinth has the largest population in all of Greece with a mix of Greeks and Jews and Romans. And because it was also a port um, of commerce between Europe and Asia, you also had people coming in from the Mediterraneans. You had the Phoenicians from the Mediterraneans coming in and you had Asians, the Phrygians coming in from the east. So it's a mixed pot of people. And upon Paul's arrival, he befriends fellow tent makers. So he was a tent maker by trade, and he, uh, he befriends Priscilla and Aquila, and for the next year and a half, the next 18 months, he spends the time preaching, teaching, and converting the inhabitants of that city until they become the church in Corinth. And it was, it was so bad that he got kicked out of the synagogue when he started teaching there because they realized he was trying to convert people from Judaism. So he got kicked out. So he's like, all right, no sweat off my brow. I'm just going to set up tent right next door. And he literally moved in next door into a believer's house that was right next to the synagogue. And he started church in there. And he began to preach and proselytize and, and teach the people about Christ. And so like most churches, the makeup of this particular church is reflective of the people that are in the area, very much the same as our church. If we look around, we will see different types of people that are reflective of the community. And so it's no wonder that because of how many different types of people there were, that after Paul had left the church, three years later, he gets a letter from a family in the church saying, you might wanna address some things. There's some problems going on 
in, in the ministry and you might need to address it. So that's what he does. He writes a letter back and he starts to address the, the problem of division. That's what he's addressing in the first chapter. So it would seem over time that the church began to split up into factions and all that factions are, they're groups that are divided for their own personal well-being. So the different groups were starting to divide under different leaders. Some people were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm following his lead. Some people were saying, I'm of Peter, I'm following his lead. Others were saying, I'm, I'm, of, I'm of Jesus Christ, I'm of Apollos, I'm following his lead. And the whole idea was that they were growing in a sense of pride and thinking that my group is better than your group. Are you still with me? We're, we're, we're talking about learning how to see the best in others and how to bring out the best in others. And so Paul attempts to restore a sense of order in his epistle and in this first chapter. And instead of opening the letter by telling them all off and rebuking them, he actually opens the letter by th giving thanks for them and for what they are. In verses four to eight, he says, I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's something we need to know about the Corinthian church, and if you've been in church in any time, you've probably heard this. The Corinthian church was a greatly gifted church. This is a church that did not lack in any type of spiritual gifting, not whatsoever. And Paul acknowledges that in the opening verses and he even goes as far as to, to praise God for the fact that they have come so far and that they've increased in speech and in knowledge. Um, but then he goes on after he thanks God for them, he goes on to correct them. And he says, I want you all to start saying the same thing. I want you all to be in unity. And if, if anything, I want you to focus on what is really important. What is important is Christ and him crucified. That is what Paul taught them. That is what he spent time investing in those 18 months. And then finally, close to the end of the chapter, he completely shifts his tone. And it's almost like he's throwing shade. He's like, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. There's actually one version that says, consider what you were when you were called. Now, if I was in Corinth, in Corinth at the time and I received this, after you've just praised me, you've gassed me up and told me how great I am and how far I've come and that I'm not lacking in any gifts, now you're gonna throw, turn around and throw in my face where I was when I was called? And called is not the sense of vocation. It's, it's more of a condition. Consider the condition that you were in at the time of your calling. So not only does he call attention to what they weren't, the fact that they weren't very wise and that they weren't very powerful of noble birth, he also draws attention to what they were. He tells them that they were foolish, they were among the weak, the lowly and despised, and those that were not. The way the Corinthians are described in these last verses, it's such a contrast of what, how he gave thanks for them in the first few verses that it gives me an appreciation for the amount of work that he had to put in in order to get them to this place and to deal with such a motley crew of believers and new believers and bring them all to this place. So maybe it's, maybe it's the heart of the counselor in me that is more drawn to the why of Paul's actions rather than the what of his actions. Because I thoroughly believe that a person's motivations, the reasons of why they do things, is what ends up informing what they do 
or the actions that they take. So for Paul, my question would be, why invest so much into a people that at the time when he encountered them would, present, would have presented as being so little? And I believe that the answer to that question is actually found in two words. God chose. Verse 27 to 29 reads, God chose what is foolish to shame the wide. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I believe that if we are going to dig beneath the surface, if we are going to learn how to find the best in people and to bring the best out of those around us, we need to have a why that will inform the investments that we make into the lives of others and those that we have relationship with. For Paul, it was enough for him to know that God chose these types of people through which to reveal himself so that nobody could boast in God for the work that nobody could boast in themselves for the work that had been done. So Paul's job was to determine what he would do in order to help bring out the best in those whom God had chosen. Are we still with me? Amen. So if we're going to be gold diggers, if we're going to expose hidden treasures in others, we need to figure out ways, practical, everyday ways that we can do that. And one of the reasons why I think Paul was so good at what he did is because he had empathy. He knew what it was like to be undesirable. I don't know how many of you might know the story of Paul, but Paul actually starts out in the Bible by the name of Saul. And he was actually a very ardent persecutor of the church. He was responsible for the murder of many Christians when the church first started, including a beloved disciple by the name of Stephen. And Saul has an encounter on his way to actually go and fulfill the duty of persecuting more Christians. He has an encounter on a road called Damascus, where he encounters Jesus Christ for himself. And that kicks off a conversion in his life, where he changes not only his perspective, praise God, changes not only his perspective, on Christianity, but he also goes as far as changing his name from Saul to Paul. And I think there's something to be, to be said about being empathetic. As a matter of fact, I believe that there are, are four different ways that we can not only see the best in others, but also help to bring more out of them. And the first way is this. If you're writing and taking notes, please write this down. Number one, consider yourself. Empathy is key. I'm always suspicious when I come up against people that are declaring that they are Christians and they have no empathy, they have no grace for anybody else. As if they forgot what it was to be in a position before you knew Christ or even what it was to really start working out your salvation in your life. I'm always suspicious of that. If you've received the grace of God, if God's been that good to you to call you, if you remember what you were, and where you were when you were called. How can you not extend that to somebody else? Paul writes the following in his epistles to the Galatians. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. But now those of you who once feared me are saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. That's Galatians 1 and 13 and verses 23 to 24. He remembered what it meant to be undesirable. Somebody that people would look at and not necessarily see the best in. Yet because God chose him, he would ultimately abandon his former nature and take on the new nature that God had provided for him and become Paul the Apostle. 
there's something very important that I want you to know when, when it comes to empathy. Many of us hear the word empathy and the automatic thought that we have is it's an emotion, it's something that we feel. But empathy is not just an emotion. From a neuroscience perspective, empathy is actually rooted in science. You can actually study, I won't go into it, but you can actually study the parts of the brain that respond when you're being empathetic to someone else. So much so that empathy invokes the same neural activity associated with our own emotions. What that means is that it helps us to connect more deeply with others because we actually feel what it feels like to be them. That's how deep empathy runs. And so I believe that it would be beneficial for us as believers to encounter people and learn to be empathetic while they're still in the rough. Learn to walk with them in that time and be empathetic to where they are so that we can help them to see the greatness and the treasure that lies inside of them, amen? Ephesians 4 and 1 to 2 states that we should walk worthy in a manner of the calling to which you are called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with each other in love. And we can only do that when we're walking in empathy. And so not only do we consider ourselves and show empathy when we're trying to get the best out of others, we also need to have additional steps to employ to benefit others. Going back into today's text, God said that he chose the weak things to shame the strong. So there's a, there's a little story that I want to share with you out of the book of Judges. Chapters six and seven, it tells the story of a man named Gideon. Many of you have heard of this story. For those of you who are new to the gospel, maybe you've never heard the story, but I'll summarize it and make it as succinct as possible. So Gideon is an Israelite, and at this time, Israel is being uh, pursued, they're being aggravated, they're being torn apart, essentially, by Midianites, by a whole other nation. And the nation is coming in, they're coming into their land, they're taking all of their harvest, they're plowing their land, they're aggressive towards the Israelites, so much so that They've now driven the inhabitants of Israel out of their land and they're dwelling in caves and dwelling in tents and they're hiding from the Midianites. And so Gideon is a young man in Israel and the Bible says that one day he is in a wine press threshing wheat. He's in a wine press threshing wheat. Doing something that he's supposed to do every day, the right thing, in the wrong place. That's for another time. But he's in the wine press threshing wheat, and the angel of the Lord comes to him, and the, and the angel of the Lord greets him, and the angel of the Lord says, Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. And he begins to tell Gideon how the Lord is going to use him to deliver his people. Now, the way that he greets him is very important. He greets him, and he says to him, Oh, Gideon, mighty man of valor. This is a man that has not seen war. He has not seen so much of a fight, right? It's a young man that he, there's no reason for him to be greeted this way by the angel unless the angel knew something that Gideon didn't know. And Gideon's response to him is so telling. In verses 14 to 16, Gideon says to him, okay, hold on. If, if, if the Lord is going to use me to deliver the people, how can that possibly be? Because in my house, in my, my clan, first and foremost, my tribe that I come from, they're the least of all the tribes. They're the weakest of all of the tribes. And in my actual house, I am the least. 
And so he's really starting to own this weakness thing. And so as the conversation continues, Gideon asks the angel to prove who he is. And the angel of the Lord just begins to show him a series of miracles, beginning with consuming an offering that, the, that Gideon lays before him. And after he consumes the offering, Gideon's like, oh, wow, this is the angel of the Lord. I should probably listen to him, right? Right? I should probably take heed to what he's saying. And then the angel gives him an instruction. He said, your father has erected some idol, some idol altars in the area. I need you to go and pull those down. So instead of just going and pulling those down, he goes and gets 10, 10 of his boys and he waits until nighttime. And then he goes and he pulls it down. And the Bible says the reason that he did that is because he was afraid. This is the same man that just was told he is going to be used to destroy the Midianites. But he's still afraid. And so over the time, um, after he pulls down the altar, he gets a little empowered and he manages to convince 32,000 men to go with him and to fight the Midianites. And after those men agree to go with him, he goes back to God and he says, mm, pardon, sir, I just, just got a little question. Just to make sure that I heard what I heard, I need you, I need you to do me a favor. I'm just going to put a wool's fleece here. And what I'm going to ask you to do is just, if, if you're really with me, I need you to rain on the fleece but don't rain on the ground around it. Go. And the Bible says he woke up and the fleece was completely wet and the ground around it was dry and he wrings out the fleece and it fills a bowl. You would think that's enough. But he's like, oh, okay, 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 okay. Don't, don't, don't be mad, don't be mad, okay, don't be mad. He actually says that in the Bible. He's like, just have patience with me, don't be mad. But I need you now to rain around the fleece but leave the fleece dry. If you're really with me, that is. Go. And says that the Lord allowed it to rain around the fleece and the fleece was completely dry. Now, again, after all of these miracles, after first and foremost just being encountered by, encountered by an angel of the Lord and having these miracles, you would think that that would suffice him. But in chapter 7, uh, God starts to do something that I think shakes Gideon a little bit. He says, the men that you have with you are actually too much, so I'm going to need to whittle them down just, just a little bit so that when you guys win the, when you win the war, it won't be attributed to your sheer numbers. So the Lord institutes two tests that whittle the number down to 10,000 and then down to 300. And when he gets to 300, he's like, boom, that's the number. That's who you're going with. 300 men. Go in the strength that I gave you. And, and Gideon is told, actually, after it's whittled down to 300, God goes back to Gideon again in order to prove to him again, I really am with you. He says, I want you tonight to go down to the camp of the Midianites. They're encamped in the valley, and I want you to listen, and you're going to hear something that's going to encourage you and going to remind you of the fact that I've given the Midianite army into your hand. But if you're afraid, take your servant Pura with you. That's chapter 7, verse 10. Verse 11 starts with, so Gideon and Pura went down to the camp. That tells me that once again, Gideon's afraid. This weak man who's being told he's going to do something, and he's traveling with his servant, come on, we're going down to the camp, because God said if I'm afraid, I should take somebody, so come on. So he takes him down to the camp, and when he listens, he hears somebody in the camp, one of the Midianite soldiers say, I had a dream, and the dream basically does that. It confirms to them that Gideon is going to come through, he's going to wipe us all out, he's going to beat us, him and the army of the Lord. And he goes back to the, the camp, his own camp afterward, feeling more confident. 
Now, one of the things that I thought was so important was the way that Pura handled that experience. Not Gideon, but Pura. Because he had an opportunity to go back to the camp with Gideon and tell everybody, basically cause division and tell everybody, there's no way we can't go with this man. He's afraid. Every time God tells this man something, he's still afraid. We can't follow him. That could have ended up being disastrous for the Israelites. When you don't want to follow your commander, when you don't want to follow your general, that can be disastrous if you decide to go to war. I actually imagine it in more contemporary Toronto terms. I want you to go with me for a second. If this was a Toronto man that followed his leader somewhere, realizing his leader's afraid, he comes back to the army, he's like, yo, guy, we can't follow this man. We can't follow Gideon at, at not at all, at all, at all. This guy is shook, guy. He's shook, fam. He's gonna get man's murked, I'm telling you. We cannot follow this guy. Yo, Gideon, man, the only thing G about you is the letter in your first name. You're just shook, guy. You're not a crook one. You're a shook one, guy. Real talks, be you need to fix up. What would that have done? What would that have done? Utterly destroyed. But Pura decided to keep quiet. And this brings us to point number two. If you want to bring out the best in someone, cover their weakness while they discover their strengths. So many times we're so quick to jump on somebody's weakness. And when I say cover a weakness, I'm not talking about covering perpetual and habitual sin and immorality in somebody's life. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when you've encountered somebody that you can see the hand of God is on them, but they're still working things out. They're still learning how this whole thing operates. They're still learning to step into the fullness of who they are. In order to help them draw out that treasure, we need to learn how to cover their weaknesses while they're being strengthened. And so Proverbs 16, 28 tells us that a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. Let's not be the whisperer. Let's not be the person that goes around telling other people and disclosing other people's witnesses. I counted an honor to come across somebody who's being used of the Lord and they have a moment of weakness and a moment of exposure and transparency and to be given the opportunity to cover that person in the moment, I consider it to be a blessing of the Lord. And so God chose the weak, but it also says that God chose the low and despised in the world. How many of you guys know the story of, of David and Goliath? Most of us know that story because it's one of the most important stories in David's life. But there's actually a couple of other stories in David's life that are equally as important but not as well known. So for those of you who don't know, David was a young man that was anointed king at the time when there was a King Saul and because of King Saul's disobedience, God decided he was stripping the kingdom from King Saul, he was gonna give it to David. So he goes to David's house, um, he sends the, the prophet Samuel to David's house in 1 Samuel to anoint David as king, but here's the thing. Instead of David being amongst his brothers when the, when the prophet calls for all of the young men in the house to come before him, his seven brothers are called and he's left out in a field. And when the oil refuses to run, when the anointing and the gifting refuses to pour out over his other seven brothers, the prophet says, do you have anybody else in the house that I should know about? He's like, yeah, we have one, he's the youngest, he's in the field somewhere. Prophet's like, go and get him. The minute he walks in the oil, the Bible says the oil begins to run because that's the one that was chose, chosen to become king. 
And so David is the, the eighth son. He's the youngest, which would make him the least in his house. But here's something that a lot of people don't know. There is, um, from a biblical perspective, there is a theory that David was actually an illegitimate child. So whether it's mama that stepped out or dada that stepped out, we don't really know. But the theory is, is that he was an illegitimate child. And in that time, an illegitimate child would be considered a shame. So he would be not only the youngest and the least, he would be despised. But the Bible says that God called him to go to the palace and to become a musician before Saul, before King Saul. And King Saul, as he's watching David um, as a musician, King Saul becomes to, be, becomes to get very jealous of David because David, as you have well heard, that he ends up being the one that kills the giant Goliath. And after he kills the giant Goliath, he has additional success in war. And people begin to gas up David and big him up much more over King Saul. And the king gets upset and becomes very, very jealous. But here's the thing. The king has a son named Jonathan. And Jonathan takes the exact opposite approach to his father. He befriends David. So much so that he said that the Bible says that his soul was knit together with David's soul and he loved him like he loved himself. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 18, there's an account between verses 1 and 5 that says that, that Jonathan goes to David and he strips himself of his robe. And he gives him his robe and his belt and his shield and his sword. This is important because from this perspective in this culture, for somebody of royalty or a dignitary to give their stuff, the things that were on them, their own vestments to you, it is a sign of great honor. So he is honoring someone who came from a shepherd's field, from a sheep herd. And not only is it an honor, but we also believe that because of where David came from, he didn't have the right clothing, the right vestments, the right things to appear in a king's court. So he blesses him by giving him proper vestments to also appear in a place where it would seem he doesn't belong. Why is this important? Because Jonathan chose not to compete, but to compliment David. And by compliment, I'm not talking about saying, my, that's a lovely shirt you have on, sir. It goes so well with your eyes and those shoes. Oh, you gotta tell me where you bought them. Not that kind of compliment. Compliment meaning to add to to enhance, to perfect. That is our point number three. If you wanna see the best in someone, you wanna draw the best out of them, choose to compliment instead of compete. And we're moving, we're moving right along. Can I ask you to put up the picture on the screens? Does anybody know what we're looking at? Throw out some words to me, anybody know? A tidbit? It actually does look like a honey glaze. A tidbit, any, anything else? A rock, I heard somebody say a rock, anything else? Chocolate. Chocolate. <laughs> Chocolate ice cream, anything, anybody else? I don't know, nothing? A pebble? Somebody said, somebody said coal? So, coral? Coral. So to the untrained eye, this could be confused as a rock or ice cream or a coral or anything else, or it could just be nothing. But to the trained eye, they would be able to look at this and recognize it as a rare colored diamond. That is a diamond. It's actually a 57.9 carat rare colored diamond. But the reason that we're looking at it and we can't figure out 
what it is, is because we don't know what we're supposed to be looking for. You could be looking at treasure and not identify it, or even worse, misidentify it as nothing because you don't know what it is that you are looking for. In God's infinite wisdom, he knows exactly who he's looking at when he chooses us. Sometimes we come across people that if we're honest, we don't think nothing of them. We don't think much of them at all. For all, we, uh, for all we're concerned, they could have a, chest, a sign on their chest that says nothing to see here, keep it moving. And we do that with people, don't we? But it's important for us to know that when we look at someone and see nothing, God looks at them and he sees the truth. He sees the diamond. I wanna give you a brief geology lesson. Many of us were taught in school that diamonds come from coal. They don't, that's, that's erroneous. Diamonds are actually formed in the lower parts of the earth in something called a kimberlite pipe, which is actually an igneous rock. And the way that it is formed is it is, carbon, it is carbon atoms that come together and crystallize when they are exposed to extreme pressure and extreme heat. And what actually brings those carbon, that, the kimberlite to the surface is volcanic eruptions in the earth trouble that's taking place that's forcing up these treasures and there are, in the world there are about 6400 kimberlite pipes that have been discovered out of that 6400 only 900 of them have been deemed to be diamondiferous that means that actually have diamonds that you could mine and out of that 900 only over 30 of those are actually proven to be economic enough to actually mine for diamonds so you have 6,400, over 6,400 sites that they've dug up to find that of that 6,400, only 900 of them may be diamond worthy. And out of that 900, only 30 actually are economic enough, are worth it enough to mine for diamonds. And this is why I find this to be very important because in simple terms, you've gotta dig through a lot of mess to find a little diamond. But that diamond, because of its value, is worth the process of digging through the mess. And it's our nature to avoid what we think are messy situations and messy people. How many of you like enjoy meeting messy people and engaging with them? Most of us don't. But if we spend our time focusing on the mess, we miss out on uncovering the great value of those around us. Consider this, diamond miners are deliberate about hunting down the kimberlite pipes, so the rock formations that actually have the diamonds in them. Why? Because they know wherever the presence of kimberlite is, there's a possibility of treasure. They actually go after the mess because they know that the mess has a possibility of treasure. Can we say the same about ourselves? Do we go after messy people in hopes that we can help them to uncover and dig deep into what is considered a treasure? And so that brings me to my fourth and final point. If we're aiming to get the best out of others, we need to concentrate on the glory and not the gory. Concentrate on the glory, what does that mean? If diamond miners were to focus on the amount of dirt that they had to sift through, they would stop their process. They would be discouraged from doing what they're doing. But instead of focusing on the gory, on the mess, 
They are actually focusing on the glory that is hoped to be revealed behind all of that mess. That is what we ought to be doing when we encounter others. Jesus sets the best example of this, and he sums it up nicely in Hebrews 12, verse 2, when he says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy that was set before him? What could be so joyous to Jesus? that he would say, I'm willing to endure the pain and the shame and the degradation of a cross. We are that joy. Our salvation is that joy. That was worth more to him. He saw the treasure in us and it made it worth it for him to go through the gory in order to expose the glory and that is what he's calling us to do as well. And so to summarize, I wanna remind us that if we're going to see the best in people, if we're gonna dig out the treasures in people, consider ourselves, be empathetic, cover the weaknesses of others, and allow others' strengths to arise, compliment others instead of competing with them. It's hard to get something out of somebody if you're their competition. Concentrate on the glory, which will be revealed at the end of the gory process. And in doing so, we can then witness the weak and the foolish and the things that are nothing become the treasure that God sees them as. Is that all right? Amen. Amen.